Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Many of us here have seen enough movies before where the scene has become familiar, where you're watching a story and, and it climaxes, and then after it climaxes, you realize something bad happened to one of the main characters. Maybe they were shot. Maybe they had a heart attack. Maybe they drowned. And then what happens is somebody jumps on them, or maybe multiple people, and they try to do CPR. They're trying to revive them, resuscitate them, and then they give up. And the music goes into a minor key at that moment, and you're like, did the main character really die? And then you know the script, how it goes, like 30 seconds later, it's like, they cough up the, the water, or like, for some reason, they're back to life. It happens so often in the movies that sometimes I watch a movie where the main character actually dies, and I think, really? Like, they're not going to come back? Like, somehow? Like, something's going to happen. You like, almost expect them to be revived. But that only happens in the movies, right? If you do a little research, you'll find it's not that uncommon for doctors to be wrong. Sorry, doctors that are here and to pronounce someone dead who's not actually dead. But if you keep researching, what you'll find is that beyond that, there's actually a rare syndrome. They call it the Lazarus syndrome, uh, where the medical world can't actually explain it. There's less than 100 cases of it, just to be clear and to be fair. And if you can find it on Wikipedia or you can find it in medical journals, and they don't really know why it happens, but what happens is somebody actually does die. Their heart stops beating, they stop breathing, vital signs are all gone, and then for some unexplainable reason, their heart starts back up. Their vital signs all come back, and they're alive. And there are multiple cases, and they have a hard time determining why or how this happens because the ages are different, the medical conditions are different, and how, how they do afterwards is all different. Like there's one story, if you look it up, there's a 27-year-old guy in the UK who overdosed on drugs. They spent 25 minutes trying to resuscitate him. They didn't. They declared him dead. One minute later, now one minute doesn't sound that long to us, but to be dead. It's a long time. One minute later, his pulse came back. He made a full recovery. It's completely fine. There was a 66-year-old man. He had an aneurysm in, uh, in his abdomen. They were operating on him. For 17 minutes, they tried to resuscitate him when he, when he flatlined, when he coded. They declared him dead. Ten minutes later, think about that. Ten minutes later, the surgeon found a pulse. The guy lived. My favorite story was a guy named Walter Williams. He was 78 years old. So we got 27-year-old, 78-year-old. 78 years old. He was on hospice care. His hospice nurse called the coroner because she thought he was dying, declared him dead at 9 p.m. on a Friday, took him to the funeral home, and in the funeral home, they noticed the body bag was moving. Like, I don't know what it's like to be a mortician, but I'd be like, that's the worst-case scenario, right? <laughs> the next day, he was having a conversation with his family. There's no explanation. But they call this the Lazarus Syndrome. You know why they call it the Lazarus Syndrome? It's after a story that happens in the Bible in John chapter 11, where there's this guy that's friends with Jesus. Jesus loves him, and he actually has to say that in the passage, that Jesus loves him and his sisters, Mary and Martha, and he gets told about this guy's Lazarus' illness before Lazarus dies, and he doesn't go. And he tells his disciples, it's better that I was not there. And then he goes to Lazarus' tomb after Lazarus had been dead for four days, and he says, roll away the stone, then he says, Lazarus, got to say Lazarus, or else everybody's coming out. He says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes walking out after being dead for four days. And do you know what doesn't happen? Lazarus doesn't write a book about it. <laughs> he doesn't go on a speaking tour and tell you what he saw, what he felt, what it was like, because that's not the point. 
The point is that God can raise the dead, that God's a God of revival. You want a more dramatic scene in the Bible? Go to Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37 is told to go to this valley, and he goes into this valley, and these bodies have been dead for a lot longer than four days because they don't have skin on them anymore. They're just bones. In fact, the Bible says there's dry bones. There's no marrow. There's there's nothing life. There's no life there at all. And then the prophet gets told to preach to the dry bones, to preach words of life. And and it sounds, it's like a a measure, it's like so ridiculous. Like, why would I even do that? But he does it. And what God does is he puts the bones back together, puts tendons back on, puts muscles, puts flesh, and then breathes life back into these bones because God revives. But the most dramatic scene in all of the Bible and all of history, we sang about in multiple songs this morning. In fact, it was neat to see how some of you responded when we got to the resurrection part. The most dramatic scene is when Jesus Christ, the God-man, is brutally murdered on a cross. Even though he committed no sins, for your sins and for my sins, he absorbs the wrath of God on the cross, dies, is buried, is in the tomb for three days. And then I love how the energy in the room changes when we sing those lyrics, that his body began to breathe. And he came roaring forth as a lion. Do you know why? Because Jesus is risen. Because God's a God of resurrection. He's a God of revival where there once was life and then there's death. He can bring life again. And we need revival. In our country, we need revival. In our churches where we've grown complacent and comfortable, we need revival. In our own lives where we once loved Jesus more than we love him now, we need revival. And here's why our hearts are prone to wander. We don't naturally go to Jesus. We naturally drift away from Jesus. We don't naturally cling to his promises. We naturally go to the deception, the false promises of this world. And so we need him to revive us. And what we've been doing in this series is asking, what does a revived church look like? In these first four weeks of this series, we're really just laying a foundation for what's going to come. And we've looked at the first two weeks, the first two marks of a revived church. We've been doing that in Acts chapter 2. And so if you've got a copy of the Bible, will you join me in Acts chapter 2 again today? And what's happening in Acts chapter 2, it's called Pentecost. The day of Pentecost has happened in Acts chapter 2 where Jesus is given a command that the church couldn't obey. And he tells them, just wait, and I'm going to send power for you to obey it. And he sends the Holy Spirit. And so they start preaching. Peter stands up and he starts preaching to these people, you've got a problem. You killed your Messiah. The Savior you've been waiting for, for all this time, he came. You missed him. You killed him. Now here's the reality. It's the same problem you and I have. Because there were tens of thousands of people there that day. They didn't all grab the wrist of Jesus and put it down on a cross. But it was their sins and it was your sins and my sins that nailed them to the cross. He says, what you're seeing happen here with this preaching, it's the Holy Spirit that's come upon us and we're preaching because it's not just a problem, there's a solution. And he tells them the solution. The solution is one word, repent. Turn from your sin and turn to God. You've been using God to run from God. You've been hiding behind your religion and pretending like you and God are okay, and you're not okay. And they see it. 3,000 of them, not everybody. And that day, 3,000, there's 3,120 believers in the church. And then we get a picture of what this revival looks like, not because this church was dead and was made alive again. It's actually just beginning. It's being born. But what we see is an alive church, a spirit-filled alive church, that if we would be revived, these are the characteristics we would demonstrate. Let's look at them together. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted, that's a commitment, they were focused on themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we saw the first week, that's a hunger for God's Word. Are you hungry for God's Word? If you're not hungry for God's Word, that's a sign you need revival. Are you hungry for God's Word? 
All right, some of you. All right, I like that. The fellowship. We saw last week, that's a distinct kind of relationship. You can't get at the synagogue. You don't have it at the Elks Club. You don't get it just from serving with people, building a house or Habitat for Humanity. This is a unique fellowship, relationships, that's a living out of the 59 commandments in the New Testament of how we're supposed to relate with one another, bear each other's burdens, confess sin to each other, agree with one another with the Holy Kiss. Talk about that some other time. Like there's lots of them in there. It's distinct Christ-centered relationship. And then this one, this week, to the breaking of bread. And then next week, a little preview, to the prayers. And then what does all this look like? And awe came upon every soul, not just the church, but all people. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They were in unity and had all things in common. Does that mean they all liked the same things and thought the same things? No. Look at what it means. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, large group gathering together, and breaking bread in their homes, small groups together, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. What you have in Acts chapter 2 is a vision of what the church could be and should be. Good vision always addresses what could be. What could be is that sometimes we just know in our gut things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way they're supposed to be here, not in this world because this place is not your home, and not even in the church because we're so broken by sin. But in your mind, you think about what should be. What should be is like the picture you start to get. You start to look towards that. All good visionaries always tell you what could be and what should be. One of the greatest visionaries in American history, Martin Luther King Jr., when he gives that I have a dream speech, there's a, there's a problem. That's being, everyone knows, white and black, they all know there's a problem. It's racism, segregation. And he gives this speech, and he addresses the problem. He goes to the solution, which everybody agrees on, and then he paints a picture of what it would actually look like lived out. In his speech, he says these words. He says, I have a dream that one day, this isn't how it is today, that one day this nation will live out its creed. And then he goes to the solution, something we all agree upon. Listen to this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Then he went on to paint a picture of what this dream would look like if we lived it out. So I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the deep south, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. So it gives you something you can see. There's a problem, racism, there's a solution. We're all created equal, but we're not treating each other equal. What would it look like if we did? And he gives this picture of the table of brotherhood. What we have in Acts chapter 2 is a vision. There's a problem. You killed your Messiah. There's a solution. It's repent. Turn, turn from your sin and turn to God. And there's a picture of what it looks like. And that's what verses 42 through 47 are, is that picture of what it looks like when we actually live this out as the revived church. And we see there's these four characteristics with these four things they devoted themselves to in verse 42. And they devoted, that's a laser focus, single-minded fidelity towards a course of action. But then there's four things. To hunger for God's word to a distinct relationship with each other. And then we saw the breaking of bread, which we're going to call today intentional intimacy with God through Christ. A third mark of a revived church is intentional intimacy with God through Christ. That's the only way. There's no way to the Father except for through Jesus. It's with God through Christ, and it's intentional. Don't miss that. 
Because there are some things that happen accidentally. Sometimes good things happen in this world accidentally. I know there's some people here that are, are inventors. You've come up with patents and made up things, and sometimes you know, and at least you know the stories of inventions. There's some good things that have been invented that it came by accident. Microwave oven. The slinky. I mean, does it get any better than the slinky? Uh, so, uh, Play-Doh or Silly Putty, one of those two, I think, is on that list. Like, there's a pacemaker. There's different things that have been invented by accident. Sometimes good stuff happens by accident. I was watching a, a highlight of a, a basketball game this week, and this guy went to take a three, and he got to the three-point line, and he, he started to jump, and when he was in the air, he decided to pass. But there was a guy underneath the hoop that didn't realize his buddy was going to pass. He started looking at the hoop, and this guy fires this pass down underneath the hoop. It hits the guy in the head, bounces, goes in the hoop. It was awesome. Sometimes, just so you know, sometimes good things happen by accident. I don't think Coach K is going to be drawing up plays this year where it's like, hey, tall guy, I want you to stand under the hoop. Hey, you, I want you to fire the ball at his head. See if we can get it to go in the hoop. It might work once. You're not going to win a national championship that way. Some of you may have gotten into a relationship with somebody that becomes this close relationship and it was like it was an act. It just kind of happened. But that's rare. And all the married couples said Amen. Intimacy takes intentionality. God was intentional with you so that you could have int intimacy with him. Think about it. It wasn't like Jesus was up in heaven and all of a sudden he's like, what am I doing here on earth with the skin on? Like he left heaven, came to earth, lived a sinless life, which no one had ever done. Leaves perfect fellowship with the Spirit, with the Father, comes here, enters into relationship, learns what it's like to be tired, to be hungry, to be tempted in every way. Think about your temptations you experienced this week, the lust, the pride, the anger, the jealousy, the desire for self-promotion, all that stuff, tempted in every way, but didn't sin. Then says, Father, if there's any other way, there's no other way. It goes to the cross. No one took his life. He laid it down. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That wasn't an accident. That was all intentional for you. God was very intentional so that you could have intimacy with him. But if we're going to have intimacy with him, we have to be intentional about intimacy with God through Christ. And we see it here back in verse 42. Go back to verse 42. That third thing that he says, that third characteristic is where I'm getting that intimacy. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, hunger for God's word, and the fellowship, the distinct relationships, and to the breaking of bread. Now, some people, just to be fair, there's more than one view on this passage. I'm presenting to you one of the views. Some people think this is just another meal. I don't think that's the case. Okay, but it doesn't really matter what I think, right? What does the Bible say? It only means what it said. It doesn't mean just like what you sense and I sense. That, it, that doesn't matter. What does the Bible say? Well, let me tell you why I think that we're not just talking about a normal meal. Not only is a normal meal mentioned later in this passage and intentionally separated from this kind of language, verses 44 through 46, you can see that. But I think when you look here and you look at the things they're devoted to, three of the four of them, if you take the, the breaking of bread out, three of them are clearly spiritual things. The prayers, the fellowship, the apostles' teaching. Like those are clearly spiritual things. And then this word, and as you get context, always drives meaning for words. This word appears right between two religiously loaded terms. The fellowship, the prayers. I think what we're talking about here is the Lord's Supper. Communion. The Eucharist, depending on your background, they all mean the same thing. Eucharist is just a word for thanksgiving. What they're all talking about is what Jesus did with his disciples the last time they had a meal together, and he said, you keep doing this in remembrance of me, and the church keeps doing it. We're going to do it today at the end of the service. The Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He's called, he says this about it. Talk about intimacy. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Which points us back to the Gospels, which were written after 1 Corinthians, by the way. But in the Gospels we read, like in Mark and Luke, or think about what it was like to be one of these disciples that are going into this last meal, that Jesus is walking with these men who he's had intimacy with unlike most men ever experience intimacy. They've laughed together. They've cried together. They've seen miracles. They've experienced persecution. And Jesus knows within hours one of them's going to betray him. They're all going to abandon him. And he's going to be brutally murdered. And he's with them celebrating this Passover meal. It was actually already had meaning. It already had symbolism. It was something they had been doing for over a thousand, about 1,500 years. And it was a celebration of what God had done in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. When God said, I'm going to pass, the death angel will pass over your house if you'll slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of your home, the firstborn in your family will be spared. And then Jesus comes into this meal that has all this meaning where they're remembering these things. And he, he takes the bread and he redefines them. He says, this bread is my body. Now, none of them sitting there were thinking, this is cannibalism. It's not his body. He's physically standing there. He's talking about the symbolism. Bread symbolized provision. He says, this bread is my broken body. It's going to be broken for you. And they're going to know and understand that meaning soon when they see him brutally beaten and crucified. He says, this cup, he takes the cup of wine, intentionally the, the wine that it was at that point in the meal too, at the end of the meal. And wine symbolized joy, celebration. He said, this is my blood. Now, it was not cool if you were Jewish. I don't know what you know about background. To be drinking blood. None of them were thinking, oh, that's blood. Give me another. Pour again. You know, I want more. He was redefining the symbolism there because his blood was the new covenant. His blood is what washes you clean from your sins. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, come to, we remember past what he did at the cross. But in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, until I return. And we look forward to him coming back again because the things here are not as they should be. Does anyone understand that? Yeah? You all with me? Like if you live life this week, you watch the news this week, amazingly, I don't think there was a shooting this week, but kids were bullied, people committed suicide, somebody was raped, stuff was stolen. This world's not the way it's supposed to be. And if you're just over 40, you know that. Your body feels it, right? Like things are, things are not like they're supposed to be. And so we long for his return, which pushes us to intimacy with him. But if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see he tells us one of the things that's key in experiencing intimacy with him. We don't have time to unpack all of 1 Corinthians 11. Earlier this year, we went verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. You can find a message on 1 Corinthians 11 on our website. I encourage you to go back there. But what you see is that Paul says in that passage on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, not to take communion in an unworthy manner. He doesn't say you're an unworthy person. Here's why. We're all unworthy people. The only way that we're made worthy is the blood of Jesus Christ. We're remembering that when we remember his death. But he says not to do it in an unworthy way, an unworthy manner. So what does that mean? Well, the context gives us four things. One of them is if you're rich, which is everybody that lives in America, if you're rich and you know believers that are not rich and you're not helping meet their needs, then you shouldn't take communion because it shows a hardness of your heart. If there's division between you and other believers, don't take communion. That was the problem in Corinth. They had division. They were making a big deal about different people that they followed. They were arguing with each other. They were getting in classes and groups and cliques. And he's like, no, 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 that's an unworthy manner, and there's judgment for that. The judgment doesn't come from the other Christians in the room. The judgment doesn't come from your pastor. The judgment doesn't come from the church. It's from God. And Paul says in that passage, that's why some of you are sick. That's why some of you have died. Another, another reason, third reason, being a non-believer 
Some people think that they take the elements, the little cracker and juicer, and you get at the end of the service, and somehow God loves you more. No, 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 you're missing the gospel. And communion is a time to remember the gospel. You gotta have communion with God and with each other. If you don't have that union with God and with each other, then communion doesn't mean anything to bring in judgment. And finally, it's if you have known unrepentant sin, in an unworthy manner. And so what this calls us to is regular repentance. And here's the reality about intentional intimacy with God. Intentional intimacy flows from regular repentance. Intentional intimacy flows from regular repentance. And what does that look like? Well, we see it here. That's how they started their relationship. And anybody here who has a relationship with Jesus started with repentance. It said in verse 36 that they were, they were hearing this message from Peter that he was preaching that Jesus was the Lord and the Christ. And in verse 37 it says they were cut to the heart. That phrase means that they were delivered a brutal blow. It means they were convicted. Deep conviction is a sign of revival. And we're going to see more of that as we go through this series. But they experienced that deep conviction. And they said, what do we do? In verse 38 he says, repent. All repentance means stop and turn. Stop, you're going towards your sin, stop going towards your sin and turn to God. Here's the problem as Christians who've heard that in the church for a long time is that a lot of times what we do is we hear, stop, I'm doing bad stuff, stop doing the bad stuff, turn back to God. And all we think about is the darkness and deception of our sin and we don't think about the satisfaction of our Savior. We've been caught doing the wrong stuff, we don't want the consequences, that's religious repentance, that's not real repentance. You're doing naughty stuff. Stop being bad. And it's like if your parents told you, maybe they trained you going to church, like I don't care what the guy on the stage says, you just look forward. Pay attention. Just got to conform my behavior. Look up. I'm just going to be good. All right, this was bad stuff. I shouldn't have been looking at porn. Shouldn't have stole that money. Shouldn't have whatever the sin was it was doing. I shouldn't have self-promoted. I shouldn't have bragged. I shouldn't be so jealous. Pick your thing. Stop doing it. And I'm going to turn back to God. And we just kind of like, yeah, that's the alternate. But what we miss, you don't get real repentance unless you see the beauty and the glory of your Savior. It's a change where you stop going towards sin, not just because sin is dark and deceptive, not just because sin is wicked and is leading you astray, but because your Savior is glorious, because He's beautiful, because He's what satisfies. And so what repentance is, is more than just you change your way of thinking. Some of you may have heard preachers say that before. The Greek word metanoiao means it's a changed way of thinking. And that's true, but it's oversimplification, which I, I granted, like, preaching the 30 or 40 minute message, it's like when you watch a show. There's a reason why Netflix, like, drags shows out forever, right? Because sitcoms seem so fake. When you watch them, it's like there's a problem, and by the end, 30 minutes later, all the world is right. And sometimes if you come to church, you expect that in a sermon, right? Like, you come and it's like, all right, here's the problem now, what? but in 30 minutes, I, don't want, I want this tension to be gone. Here's the deal. It's complex, so I'm going to be complex with you for just a moment. When you really repent, it's a change of intellect. It is a change of mind, but it's more than that. It's also a change of emotion. It's a change of desire and what you want. It's a change from going, I want this sin. Pick it, fill in the blank with whatever you're tempted towards. I, from going from I want this to I want Jesus more. So it's a change of thinking and realizing this is deceptive. This isn't going to satisfy. It's also a change of desire, and it's also a change of volition. And so it's a change of your behavior. Now, if you tell Christians that first, then they'll think, well, I just got to change. I'll just be a good boy. I'll just be a good girl. No, no, no. It starts with you start seeing your sin the way that it is, and it's not a failure in your performance. It's a hindrance to your intimacy. That you've got things in your life. Sometimes they're not the wicked things. Sometimes they're good things, but they're keeping you from experiencing intimacy with your father. 
and he starts to reveal that to you, and you start to change the way you think about those things. And then your heart starts to change. That's evidence that God's working in your life, by the way, when your desires actually start to change. That you stop wanting something, and you start wanting something else. And then that flows out of that, that your behavior changes. And you see this as signs and revival every time you see revival in the Bible and outside the Bible, post-Bible. And so you'll see it, like if you read through the Bible, you see the history of Israel as a story of revival. Where they'll, they'll come and there'll be a good king and they'll be on fire for God and then there'll be a bad king and they'll go away from God and then there's a good king and they go on fire for God. It's like this up and down and up and down. Here's why. Our hearts are prone to wander. And what will happen is this new king will come. He'll take them back to the truth, a hunger for God's word. You'll see the reality of God's presence. They'll repent of their sins. And then they start changing the way they live. You see in Jonah, have you read the book of Jonah? A lot of skeptics like to go to the book of Jonah. They're like, what fish was swallowing a human? <laughs> Don't get distracted by the fish, okay? God can make a fish for that one instance if he wants to make a fish. There's big whales. Like, we don't need to get in all that stuff. That's not the point of the book, isn't the fish. It's like what everybody thinks about with that book. I'm like distracting myself about the fish right now. I need to tell you about the book. Here's what it is. There's these people, the Ninevites. Jonah gets called to preach to them. He doesn't want to go preach to them, so he runs. God gives him a second chance. After he's in the fish, his skin's been bleached. He looks nasty, but he comes and he preaches the message. Probably a great attention grabber, by the way, for the audience. And then the people repent. Let me read you what repentance looks like. Jonah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says that the king gets this message, and he sends out this decree to all the people. He says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. These aren't Israelites. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And he does. You know what Jonah says in the next chapter? The reason why I didn't want to, I didn't want to go preach to those people, it's because he's racist. Because he hated those people. He said, because God, I knew that you were slow to anger, abounding in love. Here's what you need to know about repentance. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. God does have wrath, but he poured that wrath out on the cross on his son, Jesus Christ. That's been satisfied. And if you turn back to him, it's a guarantee he takes you back. God's kindness leads to repentance. And you see then they, they changed. There was a change of mind. There was a change of emotion. There was a change of behavior. You read that in other revivals. The Welsh revival, you can read about some of these on your own. The Welsh revival in 1904, 1905, there was such a revival that broke out, the police were keeping track that crime dropped by over 50%. So their behavior did change. In fact, the newspapers, the secular newspapers were, were amazed by how the churches were swelling in attendance, and they recorded, the secular newspapers recorded that there were over 100,000 converts in six months. Think about that. 100,000 new believers in six months as a result of God doing a revival. But here's my favorite part of the Welsh revival was it actually hurt the economy a little bit. And not because I want the economy to go bad, but because of the way that it happened. They had coal miners there, and the coal miners would shout out commands to these, they call them pit ponies, these mules that would work in the, in the pits. But in the revival, they stopped working because they couldn't understand the commands of the coal miners because the coal miners stopped cursing. And so they stopped swearing. The cadence changed, stopped dropping the F-bomb on these donkeys, right? And so the donkeys are going, I don't know what to do. Like, there's nothing, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying to me anymore. And so they stopped working because it changed their emotion, changed their desire. It also changed their behavior. That's repentance. Martin Luther is the one who said that 
that the Christian life is supposed to be one of regular repentance, that Jesus willed it when he nailed the 95 Thesis to the wall in Wittenberg. You want, you want oh, by the way, a revival? It's the Reformation. The church is corrupt. We need to go back to the Scriptures, and there's revival, the Reformation. And then Martin Luther wrote in, in, in 1521, he wrote this. You want a picture of what he's talking about here? He says, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be. And I just say amen to that. (laughs) But we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it's the road. All does not gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Regular repentance. Why, why, why? Does, are, am I somehow saying to you that in order to be intimate with Jesus, you've got to sin more? Because if you need to repent regularly, then there has to be more sin, right? No, 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 no. If you're thinking that, I'm glad you're thinking and following along and saying, hey, there's a problem with this, but that's not at all what I'm saying. See, here's what you realize when you start to read in the Bible and what happened here with these folks in Acts chapter 2 when they're cut to the heart, when they're pierced to the heart, was that as God's presence becomes more real in your life, you become more aware of the sin that's already there. As you get closer to God, he reveals more the sin that's in your life. So no, you don't need to go out. You've already got sin down. Don't worry about that, okay? Don't think you've got to go out and start sinning more in order to get intimate with God so you'll have something to repent of. No, you got that. You don't even know. God's gracious. He doesn't reveal everything to you that's wrong. See, there's good stuff in our lives that's hindering us from having intimacy with him. And he hasn't revealed that to you yet because he's patient and he's kind and he's merciful. And I am thankful. And so it's as he gets closer, the sin becomes more evident. Just look at, you can look at stories if you want something to go look at. Luke chapter 5, Peter's a fisherman. He loves fishing. He's thought his whole life about fishing, catching fish. He has the greatest catch he's ever had in his life. And then Jesus is the one who made it happen. He doesn't look and go, look at all these fish. He goes, away from me, I'm a sinful man. As you get closer to God and you start to realize his presence in your life, he starts to reveal sin, which leads us to regular repentance. Regular repentance, it's, it's a must. It's like a requirement of intentional intimacy. But the next thing is this. Intentional intimacy flows from a life of love. Intentional intimacy flows from a life of love. And so before we even jump back to the text, let me just ask you this. This is the most basic question. And I think it's one that gets assumed a lot of times in church. And it's the key. If you don't get anything else today, Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? And you answer that that question for yourself. And maybe you think about, was there a time when you loved Jesus more? And and notice, I'm not asking you, do you believe in him? I'm not asking if you're a Christian. I'm not asking whether you do stuff for him. There's some of you here that would die for Jesus. That doesn't mean you love him. Do you love him? Some of you, I'd ask you if you love your spouse. You're like, well, I made him dinner last night. I brought her flowers this week. We go on a date every, I didn't ask that. Didn't ask if you know their favorite song. Didn't ask, do you love them? Do you love Jesus? Because it's possible. It is possible. So hear this warning. It's possible to do a lot of good stuff. It's possible to be willing to die for him. It's possible to believe in him. It's possible to teach about him. Warning to myself. It's possible to read the Bible every day and not love him. In fact, there's a church in Revelation chapter 2. It's the church of Ephesus. And, and Jesus speaks to this church in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. He says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Lots of good stuff there. So, but you've, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not false teachers. You can recognize false teachers. You found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. 
You're facing persecution for my name. That's a, you're a fruit of the Spirit. You're being patient in my name. You know the word. You're doing the right stuff. But listen to this. Listen to what he says. Verse 4, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You don't love me. But wait, I know the Bible. I can find false teachers. I've got a fruit of the Spirit in my life. He's not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not asking if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I hope you'll trust Jesus today. But I'm speaking to those of you who are, are Christians. Do you love him? And if you've fallen out of love with him, look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from when you've fallen, repent. Do you see how satisfying your Savior is? And do the works you did at first. Wait, wait, I thought it wasn't about the things that I did. We'll talk about that in just a second. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand. That's your influence, your light. You will no longer be salty, church. You will no longer be influential from its place unless you repent. So do you love him? And how do you know? How do you know if you love him? Well, if you hunger after his word, you know the place to go to find the answer is in the Bible. And there are several things that Jesus says that that point us to whether we love him or not. One of the most clear ones is in John chapter 14 and verse 15 when he's promising the Holy Spirit. He says, if you love me, you do what I say. You keep my commandments. I love that John later in life writes another book. It's called 1 John. And he's not saying that you never have sin because 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 says, if you claim to have no sin, you're a liar. We all have sin. But he says this, and he's talking about the trajectory of your life for the most part. You're moving in this direction. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. Now let me say this. Obedience is not love. Notice in the verse, love comes first. Obedience flows out of love. This is love, you keep his commandments, and then I love this clarification, and his commandments are not burdensome. There's where you see the change of desire. That has to happen. That's the evidence of God's real working in your life. Let me give you a scenario, and, I'll, and you'll see how this works. Later today, what will probably happen at my house is my kids are going to go to the loft. It's our middle school, high school um, youth group that happens up here at 6 o'clock on, on Sunday nights. And My wife will probably bring them up here, and it might be my job to take them, bring them back, or vice versa. Maybe I'll bring them up here, and, and it'll be her job to bring them back. And then at the end of the day, what will happen is... I'll, you know, prayed with a bunch of you and, and talked about heavy stuff that's going on in life and preached a couple messages and gone to some soccer games and I'll be back at home binging out on Netflix, eating ice cream, hopefully, if it's a good day. And my wife will say, do you want to go get the kids? She won't say, will you go get the kids? That's a different question. Do you want to go get the kids? If I'm not in a good place, let me tell you what I will say. In my head, I might not say it out loud. Hopefully I won't say it out loud. I don't want to go get the kids. I want to hear me self-indulgent. I want the world to revolve around me. I want to not interact with another human right now. I want to just watch this show. But I probably will go get the kids because it's a duty. It's an obligation. It's like what a good dad would do. Now, if I'm doing well, and this is, both things have happened, by the way, just to be candid. You can pray for me later today, all right? Appreciate that. If I'm doing well, like with my family and with Jesus, and my wife says, hey, do you want to go get the kids? Then I'll think, well, that, that would be a blessing to you and, and give me more time with them, and that would be a joy. It actually is a joy. The, the same activity that could be a frustration and a burden and make me angry can be something that brings joy to my life based on love. You want an illustration of this in the Bible? Read Genesis. There's this guy in the book of Genesis. His name is Jacob, and he wants to marry this woman named Rachel. 
In Genesis chapter 29 and verse 20, it says this. He had to work seven years to pay off the bride price. So if you've got any little boys that are thinking about marrying my daughters, remember this story, all right? <laughs> Genesis chapter 29 and verse 20 says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days. Why? Because of the love he had for her. And when you look at this church, we know that they love Jesus. Why? Because you see their obedience. Where do you see that? Where's that at in the past? It's not one of the four characteristics. It's the context. Remember, context. Context always gives us the meaning. What's happened? Peter preaches this message. Problem, you killed your Messiah. What do we do? Repent. They do. And then what's the obedience? They're baptized. Now think about that. Like, I love baptism. Baptism's awesome at Southbridge. One of my favorite services we had this year is when we baptized people. We baptized like 10 people. And then Crystal was leading worship. She's up here leading worship today. And I was thinking, all right, we're running out of time. Like, we get to wrap this thing up. She said, if you still want to get baptized, come up here. And I thought, nah, no one will do it. It'll be fine. Then two dudes got up, got baptized in their church clothes. It was awesome. But you know what? People cheered for them. People were excited for them. It's rare in our culture that anyone faces persecution because they're baptized. Maybe if you're Muslim, your family will stop talking to you. But death? Think about, it's easy for me to preach to you Acts chapter 2 and go 3,120 and they turned the world upside down. By chapter 5, there were 5,000, then there were 10,000, then it spread and it went around the world and it's all true. But put yourself in their seat for a second. They're Jewish, most of them. You don't get baptized. You know who gets baptized? Gentiles. Those Gentile dogs. That's most of us, by the way. If you, wanted, if you came to yourself in their context and you realized that you needed to become Jewish, one of the steps was baptism. And what you were doing when you got baptized was you were saying, I'm forsaking my past life, and I'm going to be washed from all of this defilement, and I'm going to walk in a new way of life. And here's what they don't know when they get baptized. They're, they're familiar with that. They don't know how their family's going to respond. They don't know if they're going to have a job. They don't know if Peter's going to get killed for preaching this message. They just killed the Messiah. Why won't they kill Peter? Why won't they kill them? Here's, here's one of the keys to faith. You don't know what's going to happen next. And see, faith is what breeds obedience. It's that we trust the promises of God. We trust what, his, what he says. We obey the commandments because we trust him. That's faith. But it oftentimes looks like to us risk when we're living in it because we don't know what happens next. They didn't know what happened next. That's where we see their obedience is they were willing to do it, what they were commanded, even though they didn't know the next step or the results. I shared with you guys uh, last week, if you were here, that we took our daughter, our oldest daughter, Ella, on a trip to Carowinds, an amusement park. We were riding roller coasters and to celebrate her being 13 years old, we wanted to talk about overcoming fear and trying new things. And one of the things I didn't share with you is when you go to Carowinds, if you've never been there, one of the great things, and this is a sponsored sermon, uh, benefits from Carowinds, please send this to them. Um, when you pay for the amusement park, you get to go to the water park too. And when we went to the water park, there were all these slides, like big ones with tubes on them and twisty and all kinds of ones that are covered and ones that were open and all kinds of different slides, but there was this one that was way higher than the rest of them. And when we went into the water park, Ella said, that's the one thing she's not doing. Like in the park, she goes, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. Which I thought to myself, then I have to do that. Like I'm gonna do that, like I'm all in. I'm like in kid mode, and let me tell you something. I went up, it was awful. Everything about it was terrible. Like, I don't love heights. And as I was getting up past where all the other, like, you can see the other slides below you. I'm like, everything's moving. Like, what's happening? I'm getting close to the rail. But here's what I took solace in the whole time. 
the kid in front of me, he was like 10 years old. And I kept telling myself, if he can do it, I can do it. And so we get up there. And if you haven't seen this slide before, let me tell you what it's like if you're claustrophobic. This is not the slide for you. You get into this section, they close this tube over top of you. So it's like a coffin, basically. And then you're standing on a see-through floor that they're going to drop from underneath you. Okay? So we get up to the top, and this kid's standing there. He's been excited to go the whole time. It's his turn. He gets in the tube. They close it on him. We've watched them do this to other people. Three, two, one, floor drops out. I don't know what happens in the meantime, but they end up at the bottom. The guy starts to count while this kid's in the tube. Three, two, then he starts screaming his head off. Ah! The guy stops. He says, do you want out? He's like, yeah. He goes, too late, one, boom, and he hits the button. The kid went like this. He went, woof, like he stuck it like a cat, like he just stuck his finger. Gravity won. He went down. Then I'm standing there. So I could not go after the 10-year-old went. So my pride got me in that tube. He drops me down. It was fun. The worst wedgie I've ever had, like when you get to the bottom. But then you know what I did? I went to Ella. It's like, Ella, you got to go on this slide. This 10-year-old kid just did it. I didn't tell her his fingernails were still up there. I was like, yeah, hey, look at up there. She went up there. She went on it. You know what the worst part was? Is I had already done it. That she didn't know what was going to happen next. She's standing there. Even though you see it happen to someone, and it's like, you're getting in, and the floor's going to drop out. And at the end of the day, I asked her, I said, what was the best thing you did the whole day? And she said, the slide. Do you know what the Bible says about faith? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says that without faith, it's improbable you'll please God. That's not what it says, is it? See, those of you who hunger for God's word, you read it on your own, you know that it actually says it's impossible to please God without faith. That we walk by faith, we begin in our relationship with Jesus by faith, and we continue by faith. And what oftentimes happens to the church is we become comfortable and complacent, and we think that Jesus exists to keep us comfortable. And we need revival to bring us back to life, to walk by faith. What is God calling you to walk by faith in today? It might be clear obedience to a passage of Scripture that you've been disobeying and you still want Him to bless you, that your heart is becoming hardened, you're falling into the deception of sin, and you're not going to hear Him eventually. So if you hear His voice, even if it's faint today, calling you to take a step of faith, do it. Some of you, He calls you to repent, repent of sin. Maybe it's heinous and obvious and clear according to the Bible. It's lust or it's pride or it's jealousy or it's gossip, or maybe it's just good stuff that's hindering you from being intimate with Him. Do you love Him? If you faded in that love, just like he can raise Lazarus out of the tomb, he can bring you back into love with him. So let's go to him. Let's, let's pray. Let's repent together.